You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would please turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. Matthew 26 is where we are this morning. We're going to read beginning at verse 1, and we're going to read down to verse 16. Matthew 26 beginning at verse 1. This is the Word of God. Now it happened that when Jesus had finished all these words, He said to His disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be delivered over for crucifixion. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas. And they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill Him. But they were saying, not during the festival, lest a riot occur among the people. Now when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But when the disciples saw this, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good work to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, What this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me to deliver him to you? And they weighed out thirty pieces of silver to him. And from then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Let's go to our God together in prayer and ask His blessing. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful that we are Yours. You've made us Your own by the complete, finished work of Your Son. You have delivered us from our sins and from Your wrath. You've made us Your children. You've made us new creations In Christ Jesus, the old things have passed away. All things have become new. And so you granted to us hearts that love you, love the things you would have us to love, desire the things you would have us to desire, which is why a day like this, a day of worship, together with brothers and sisters, is so precious to us and encouraging to us. And Lord, you have your hand upon us and you have secured us for forever. You've granted us faith and you preserve that faith in us so that we persevere and through all of our ups and downs and successes and failures, you are patient with us and your love persists toward us. And it's perfect love. It is a love that reproves and develops. It is a love that builds up and tears down. We thank you for these things. This morning as we turn our attention to Your Word, as we 
declare the things that You've revealed about Your Son. May You watch over this time so that it pleases You. Lord, would You watch over me in such a way that I would say nothing that would displease You, but only that which is good for the edification of Your people. And Lord, would You be at work in our hearing today so that we have open hearts that are able to receive the things that You've given. We know, Lord, the seed is being sown and it meets with different kinds of hearts and illustrated by different kinds of soils. And Lord, Your Word never goes forth and it doesn't accomplish everything for which it was sent. Your purposes will be done, completed this morning. But Lord, we especially long for and desire salvation for the lost and growth for the saved. And we'll be careful to give You thanks for what You do. In Jesus' name, Amen. One of the things that you see in the Gospel of Matthew, one of the ways that Matthew is consistent in the way that he presents his testimony of Jesus, is that when he comes to the end of one of Christ's discourses, he indicates that. He lets us know we're at the end of it. For example, when you come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 28, Matthew writes, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at His teaching, for He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So He says, when Jesus had finished these sayings, He says, we're at the end of this discourse, and then He summarizes the effect of what Christ had taught. You see the same kind of formula at the end of other sections where Matthew records the teaching of Jesus. Matthew 11, verse 1, when Jesus had finished instructing His twelve disciples. He went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Matthew 13, 53, and when Jesus had finished these parables, He went away from there. Matthew 19, verse 1, now when Jesus had finished these sayings, He went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. We have now come to the end of the Olivet Discourse, and once again Matthew indicates that. Verse 1, chapter 26, now it happened that when Jesus had finished all these words. And so he now transitions to the next section of his presentation of our Lord. What he transitions to now is the final leg of Christ's journey to the cross. We now are taken to the very thing that Jesus came into the world to accomplish this is what He came into the world to do. This is what He's been aiming at all along. He came to save His people from their sins. He would come into the world, the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. And He's been preparing His disciples for this, for His death, for His resurrection. Three times in the Gospel of Matthew, we find that Jesus prepared His disciples for His death. Matthew 16, verse 21, from that time Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Matthew 17, verse 22, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill Him and He will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Matthew chapter 20, verse 18. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, 
And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and He will be raised on the third day. Jesus, three times, telling His disciples how He's going to be handed over, how He's going to be treated, how He's going to die, and the fact that He's going to be raised from the dead. Well, He does that again here. Verse 2, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be delivered over for crucifixion. Once again, preparing His disciples for His death. But as Matthew gives this to us, he does something interesting, I think, in verses 1-16. through He actually goes on to give us not just that scene, but three scenes that follow, each one giving us a different perspective of people as Jesus is on His way to the cross. We find the perspective of Jesus in verses 1-2. through We find the perspective of the, the leaders of Israel in the verses that follow that, the chief priests, the scribes. You see that. Then you see the perspective of Christ's disciples. Mary and then His disciples in the verses that follow that. And then finally, we read of Judas and his agreement to betray Jesus. Four perspectives, four windows, as it were, into the attitudes and activities of people as Christ is on His way to the cross. These four perspectives are important not only because they happen, not only because this is history, and God is telling us through Matthew what happened to His Son. These four perspectives are important because they still exist to this day. I mean, Jesus is prophesying His death in verses 1-2, through but as we've just been learning in the Olivet Discourse, He has also prophesied His second coming. So what do we do with the words of Christ, when He tells us what is coming. And just as there were people conspiring against the Son of God before He died, so the nations gather themselves together even to this day, conspiring against that which represents Christ and His church and His Word. And just as disciples responded to the teaching of Christ, the ministry of Christ on the way to the cross, so after the cross. Now we're, we're worshiping the One who has been raised from the dead. We're waiting for a second coming. So now, how are we responding to all the teaching we have received and all the ways that we have been influenced by the ministry of Christ in our lives? How are we responding to that? And just as there was a devil among them, a, de- a deceived one who was himself a deceiver in Judas Iscariot, so to this day, even within the company of God's professing people, there are people who don't really know Jesus. They sit among us. They worship with us. We don't necessarily suspect them any more than the disciples suspected Judas, that there are people in the company of God's professing church who don't really know the Son of God. And who, in fact, are willing to sell Him out to further their own interests. And so just as you have these four perspectives before the cross, so you have the same sorts of perspectives following the cross as we await the return of our Lord. And so I want us to consider that today. 
This morning we think about this. We think about four perspectives on the way to the cross. And we begin with the perspective of the shepherd. The perspective of the shepherd. Verse 1. Now, it happened that when Jesus had finished all these words, He said to His disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be delivered over for crucifixion. The perspective of the shepherd himself as this final leg of the journey is upon us, as he is on his way to his death on the cross. And if we were to summarize what we see in those two verses with one word, I think you could summarize it with the word courage. Or perhaps even you could use the word calm. Jesus, in a very straightforward, matter-of-fact way, once again, for the fourth time in Matthew's account, is telling His disciples exactly what is going to take place. And yet every step of the way, He continues to march His way to His death on the cross to save us from our sins. This is the prophecy of His death once more. And what, who is He saying this to? He is saying it to His disciples. Once again, the shepherd is taking care of His sheep. The shepherd is taking care of His disciples, His men. And in these words is amazing irony. When you think about the location of this, in what we've just finished in the Olivet Discourse, the irony is thick. Jesus has declared what He will do when He comes again, His second coming, but now He's telling them what He's got to do before He's finished, before He leaves. So the previous section, what's going to happen when He comes again, this section, what has to happen before He leaves and ascends into heaven. When He comes again, He's going to come in glory with all authority. He's going to judge the whole earth. And yet now He is describing a time when He'll be handed over to men and experience the judgment of sinners. The one who will judge sinners is about to be judged by sinners. The one who's going to come in glory is going to hand himself over for humiliation. The most humiliating death one could imagine. The kind of death that speaks of a curse, the crucifixion of the Son of God. The one who represents perfect justice on the final day will die the death of a criminal. The one who will come with all authority is going to be treated like he has no authority. And here he is with perfect strength and dignity telling his disciples exactly how long he has. He says, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be delivered over for crucifixion. He has two days. He tells them when His death will occur, two days. He tells them what His death will be associated with, the Passover. He tells them how His death will occur. He's going to be crucified. It is the perspective of the shepherd, calmly resolved, with great strength, seeing the wolf approaching, not running, but saving his sheep, laying down his life for his flock. John chapter 10, verse 12 says this, Jesus said, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, 
who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches and scatters them because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me. And I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep which are not from this fold. I must bring them also. And they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Jews, Gentiles, gathered together in one family, one flock with one shepherd. And Jesus died for us all and brought us all into His fold. And so when you see verses 1 and 2 and you see Jesus preparing His disciples, just know that the courage and the confidence that you see on display here, this was not just on their behalf, this was on your behalf. This is the shepherd on his way to save us, to save us, to save me, to save you from our sins. The perspective of the shepherd. Second, verses 3 through 5, see the perspective of the vipers, the perspective of the snakes, you brood of vipers. Both John the Baptist and Jesus would identify them as sons of the great serpent, the devil. If there's one word that would summarize what you see in verses 3-5, through it would be the word corruption. In Christ you see courage, in these men you see corruption. With Jesus you have the prophecy of His death, with these men you have the planning of His death. Verse 3, then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill Him. But they were saying, not during the festival, lest a riot occur among the people. By Matthew, by the Spirit of God, taken right into the pit of the vipers, we get to see their activity. Who are the conspirators? Who are the people conspiring, plotting, planning for the death of Jesus? Well, these are the religious leaders of Israel, the clerical leaders of the people, the lay leaders of the people, the chief priests and the elders, gathered together in the court of Rome's puppet high priest, Caiaphas. The Romans would displace high priests and they would seat high priests. Caiaphas was one of those whom they had put in his chair planning together, plotting together to kill Jesus by stealth. And that speaks of their character. By stealth they will do this. The word is dalas, and the word means to take advantage through craft and underhanded methods, deceit, cunning, treachery. These are hypocrites. And they will do what they do by deception. Their planning is in keeping with their character. This is who they are. Their father is a liar and a murderer. And so they're simply planning what their father desires, Satan. To seize Jesus by stealth and kill Him. There's no reason for Him to die. From a human point of view, He's done nothing wrong. Even the thief on the cross recognized that. This man has done nothing to deserve this. 
And so even from a, an honest human point of view, this is murder. James Montgomery Boyce commented, he said, the leading figure in the plot to arrest and kill Jesus was Caiaphas, the high priest. Caiaphas had been appointed high priest by Valerius Gratus, Pilate's predecessor in A.D. 18, about 12 years earlier. He was the son-in-law of Annas, the hereditary high priest who had served from A.D. 6 to 15 until the Romans deposed him. Caiaphas survived until A.D. 36, which means that he held his office for 18 years. This tells us something important about him. Between 37 B.C. and A.D. 67, when the last of the high priests was appointed just before the destruction of the temple, the Romans appointed and deposed no less than 28 high priests. If Caiaphas survived for 18 years, it could only have been because he was a shrewd politician who wanted to hang on to power at all costs. This is precisely what the gospel accounts disclose. Close quote. He's right. And so here they are in the court of the ringleader, Caiaphas, who is this wily politician who knows how to hold on to power, and they're conspiring together how they can get rid of Jesus. These are snakes. And you see their character also in their caution. Verse 5, but they were saying, not during the festival, lest a riot occur among the people. Now what are they talking about when they talk about the festival? Well, following Passover is the seven days of unleavened bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. So what they're saying is, not for nine days. Let's get beyond the Passover. Let's get beyond the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then we'll do what we're talking about doing. So Passover, seven days, then the next day. Nine days. Let's put this off. Because we don't want to riot on our hands. The city's full of pilgrims. The city's full of people who come from all over. Many of these people are followers of Jesus. Many of these people have believed in Jesus as the Messiah. If we seize Him in a way that they're aware of, it could lead to real trouble for us. So let's let the festival pass, let everybody disperse, and then we'll do what we have to do. I think about Psalm 2. Psalm 2 verse 1, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That is, we don't want God to rule over us. Let's get rid of His authority. Let's get rid of His rule. In this case, let's get rid of His king. Let's get rid of His ruler. Verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And I can't help but think that here we have God's laughter, as it were, because He preserves for us by the Spirit of God that they wanted this to occur in nine days. Jesus has just prophesied it's going to happen in two days. And in a moment we're going to see how God's plan was brought to fruition because they didn't imagine a betrayer who would work with them and hand Jesus over secretly, so they could avoid the kind of riot that they're afraid of. What do you see? You see that evil men plot 
but God's sovereign decrees stand. Men can plot all that they want. God alone is God. And what God has purpose to do, God always does. And there's nothing that could ever thwart it. Not a single individual and not nations full of people can stand in the way of what God has destined to do. These people, as I said, are snakes. They're vicious, but Jesus is not a victim. They don't take Him according to their plan. He lays His life down according to God's plan. John 10, 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus laid His life down with all authority. It appears from a human vantage point, He is stripped of any kind of control. And yet, He is in complete control. God is in complete control. With authority, He lays His life down down for His sheep. So we have the perspective of the shepherd. We have the perspective of the vipers. Third, we have the perspective of disciples. The perspective of disciples, verses 6-13. through 13. With Jesus, we see courage. With the vipers, we see corruption. What one word could sum up what we see with the disciples? It would be the word confusion. Because it's a mixture, what we see in verses 6 through 13. It's a mixed perspective. Jesus prophesied his death. The vipers are planning his death. In these verses, we see the preparation for his death. We're taken to the home of Simon the leper. Verse 6 Now, when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But when the disciples saw this, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good work to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Jesus in Bethany, where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived, there are two different anointings talked about in the gospel accounts. There's one in Luke, where a woman who's a sinner anointed Him, and that's something different than this one. That took place in the home of a Pharisee. This is in the home of Simon the leper. Interesting, and this is why I've organized the sermon the way that I have these four perspectives, because these verses are not located by Matthew chronologically. In verses 1 and 2, we have them two days before the Passover. This actually took place six days before the Passover. Why, Matthew, do you place it here? The answer is, it's thematically located. Not chronologically located, but thematically located. 
He wants us to see these varying perspectives side by side. He wants us to see the mindset, the attitudes, the thought process leading down this final leg of the journey to the cross. So we see Jesus and we see the vipers. Now we see His disciples. John 12, verse 1, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for Him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with Him at table. Mary, therefore. So John tells us who did this. Matthew says a woman. John says it was Mary. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped His feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. What do you have? You have incredible discernment on the part of Mary. Never forget, discernment is the result of the application of truth. Discernment is not something that's natural. Discernment is something, I'm talking now about true spiritual discernment. There are people who are sort of naturally discerning. They have sort of an insight into other people. That's not spiritual discernment. That's explained by nature. And many times explained by just sort of a suspicious nature. Like you don't trust anyone, so you're always watching for what could go wrong. Now this is something different. This is spiritual insight. And it's always the result of the application of what God has given. You take what He has revealed. You take what is true according to the living God and you hear it and you believe it and you apply it. That's where discernment comes from. And Mary evidences incredible discernment on this occasion. Why? Because she has been listening to Jesus. Where do you find Mary when Martha is busy serving? Sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to His teaching. Luke 10, 38, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed Him into her house. Now, this is earlier. This isn't the same occasion. But what I'm wanting to do is show you what is illustrative of Mary's relationship with Jesus. She loves Him. She's a believer, and she listens to Him. goes on to say, Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to Him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to His teaching. So when Jesus has been talking about His death to His disciples, that's the kind of thing they should have been really locked into and hearing. Well, Mary was one who was paying attention. She took His words into her heart. She knows that her Lord is on His way to His death. So what does she do? She takes perfume that was valued at about a year's wages. 300 denarii, the Bible tells us, which is about a year's wages. She breaks the neck of the flask and spends it all on Jesus, pours it out on the Lord Jesus to anoint Him. The value of this is recorded in Mark chapter 14, verse 5. For this ointment, the disciples said this, for this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. 
They scolded her, the Bible says. Mary, why did you do this? Why did you take this expensive product that you've been saving, no doubt, maybe the most valuable thing you have? Why would you take it and pour it out on the Lord Jesus? Well, Jesus tells us why, doesn't He? Verse 12, For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. She has this insight. She understands. Now, all that she understood, I'm not sure, but she understood this much, that her Lord is on His way to His death, and He is more valuable than the most valuable thing she possesses and is worthy to have her spend it all on Him. That much she knew. D.A. Carson commented, he said this, the action of the woman was not unprecedented. A distinguished rabbi might have been so honored. The evangelist stressed the cost of the perfume, which was extracted from the thin-necked alabaster flask by snapping off the neck. According to John 12, 3, the nard was worth about 300 denarii, approximately a year's salary for a working man. The anointing does not designate Jesus as Messiah, but prepares Him for His burial after dying the death of a criminal, for only in that circumstance would the customary anointing of the body be omitted. So she likely was not aware of this, but the very way that he was anointed also indicates the way he will die. This is something you find in Christ's disciples from time to time, isn't it? You, you see this in Peter's confession. But Peter, who do you say? Who do you say that I am? And Peter gives that great confession where he confesses Jesus as the Son of God. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Simon Barjona, but my Father who is in heaven. And it's just barely a few minutes later when he's hearing the words, get behind me, Satan. As he tells Jesus that he will not, he will not die in the way that Jesus is talking about. What do you see? You see this capacity in us for, it, for these moments, these flashes of incredible insight because of the grace of God, because of His work in our hearts, and because of the truth that He gives to us. We can see things that we should see. But sadly, and somewhat pathetically, you can also see that we have the capacity, even though we've been saved, because of the presence of the flesh, because we're not yet glorified, we have this capacity to be incredibly spiritually stupid. And that's what you also see in the disciples. You see this incredible insight in them. That's why I say it's confusion. It's a mixed picture. Because in Mary, one of his disciples, you see, you see this incredible insight. But in the very same scene, you see incredible dullness. When the disciples saw this verse 8, they were indignant. That is to say, they were offended. This bothered them. Why this waste? Can you imagine? Something spent on Jesus and you call it waste? But this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good work to me. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Spiritual stupidity. They treat a good work like it's an evil 
deed. They treat something beautiful like it's ugly. I love what Mark preserved for us. Mark 14, verse 4. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her, but Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. This is good. This is beautiful. But their dullness is also seen that they don't understand the moment at all. They treat something like it's a momentary opportunity when it's really a final opportunity. They'll have more time in the future to honor Jesus when in fact this is the moment for it. You'll always have the poor with you. But you don't always have me. She has done this for my burial. Something else you see, not in Matthew's account, but you see it in the other accounts. This also reminds us that we have the capacity not just for spiritual stupidity and dullness, but we have the capacity to be influenced by evil. Because these disciples are indeed saying this, but John tells us that there was a sort of a ringleader in this criticism. John 12, verse 4, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? I mean, he's expressing an attitude found in the disciples, but he's the ringleader. He's the mouthpiece. And then John says this, He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And if we had put this in the common treasury, I could have had some more money. That's what he's really thinking. The perspective of the shepherd, the perspective of the vipers planning his death, the perspective of the disciples, it's mixed. You see the beauty of what God does in us and the insight that Mary had and the love that she had for Jesus. The valuation of the Lord Jesus that she evidenced by her willingness to lose her most precious item perhaps, spending it on Him. But also the incredible stupidity we can still be guilty of and the dullness that can be evidenced in our lives and our ability to be influenced by evil, evil men and women. As Judas had an influence on those, those, the attitude of those disciples, he gives voice to what he does because he's a thief. Which leads to the fourth window, the fourth perspective. 14 through 16, the perspective of a devil. The perspective of a devil. Then one of the twelve named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me to deliver him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him and from then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. A devil in their midst. And this, as you know, did not catch Jesus off guard in the least. He knew this from the beginning. John chapter 6, verse 70, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? That's early on. So Judas is not in the company of Christ's disciples by accident. He's there 
by sovereign design. And yet he's fully responsible. A man who fulfills the Scriptures, but is still fully responsible for his betrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 26, verse 24. The Son of Man is going just as it is written of Him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. We'll look at this tonight in our evening service. It's written of you, Judas, but woe to you who fulfills what has been written. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Here is a man who has been loved by Jesus. Earlier this morning in our Scripture reading, we heard from Psalm 41, a psalm that foreshadows the sufferings of Messiah. In the ninth verse, as it was read, listen again what it says, "...even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me." A man loved by Jesus, a man who's been extended friendship by Jesus, perfect friendship. A man who's been granted the most unimaginable privilege to live with Jesus for three years, to walk with the Son of God on earth, to spend time with Him that others did not have the same access to. You have heard His teaching. You have witnessed His miracles. You've experienced kindnesses from Him directly. He's extended those kindnesses to you. You've had all of this, and you think it's worth, He's worth, 30 pieces of silver. Do you, do you see why Matthew organizes this the way that he does? Not chronologically, but thematically. Mary demonstrates what she thinks Jesus is worth. He's worth more than the best she has. Judas thinks he's worth 30 pieces of silver. What a contrast. A woman who gladly sacrifices a year's wages in an act of worship. A man seeking about four months' wages for the life of His Master, His professed Master. So when you see these four perspectives on the way to the cross, these four windows into the attitudes and activities of people as Jesus is on His way to give His life to save us, what do you see? Look at Jesus. You see the beauty of our Savior, our Shepherd, our Deliverer, the Lover of our souls. You see His strength and dignity, the perfections of His love and wisdom. Even at the very end, He is shepherding His men with the truth to prepare them for what they're about to face. Look at the vipers gathered together. You see the ugliness of lost human souls the foolishness, the pride of men as they gather together to take counsel against God and against His own. What fools. What fools. You see their frailty. They feel strong. Don't they? They feel strong. We're going to seize Him and kill Him. They're so weak. It's going to be done, but not even according to their plan. They want nine days. Jesus, before they do it, says it's going to be two days. And it will be two days. Look at the disciples. You see the beauty of us. 
all explained by the grace of God. Hearts that really do love the Lord Jesus. Even the disciples who are rebuking Mary, they're not like Judas. They sound like Him in that moment, but they're not like Him. And Mary demonstrates what kind of love and devotion is in our hearts by the grace of God toward the Lord Jesus Christ. If these men could have been awake and shaken to what they were doing, they would have repented. Because these are saved men. And so we see God's good work in us, but at the same time we, 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 we weep, don't we? We grieve over the sin that is still present in us and is reflected in us and how stupid we can be and how foolish we can be at times. When you see the devil himself in their midst, the tragedy of somebody who's blind and deceived, living right in the presence of light like the sun, and they can't see. These are the scenes on the way to the cross, but these are also scenes on the other side of the cross. As now we await the return of our Lord. The question is, which one are you? Where do you belong? As you hear the prophecy of Jesus, they heard about His death. We hear about His second coming. As you hear the prophecy of Jesus, how do you respond? What are your thoughts? How are you living? Can you say this morning with truth that you are in the company of the disciples? Oh yes, you see your frailties and your failings. And it grieves your heart because you are saved, but you are in the company of His disciples. You are a believer. You love the Lord Jesus Christ. You love His people. You believe His truth. You're looking for His return. You're living for His return. You would, you would spend and be spent on behalf of Christ and the souls of men and women because God has saved you. Is that you? Or maybe even someone hearing me, you're... You're like one of those conspirators. You rail against Christ and His church. You rail against the truth. You mock it and scoff at it. And somehow imagine that you're wiser than all of it and stronger than all of it. What a fool you are. I say that loving you and desiring your salvation. What a fool you are. How frail you are, you can't even see it. Your imaginations won't be what rules the future. God's decrees will rule the future. You know that. And then maybe even there's someone hearing me that you are like Judas. You spend a lot of time in the presence of light. You spend a lot of time under the teaching of God's Word. You spend a lot of time in the company of truly saved people. You spend a lot of time saying what they say. Maybe even sometimes you influence them so they say what you say. But you are a stranger to the one you say you know. You are deceived. You are blind right in the presence of the Son. And your need is to repent so that you're no longer like Judas. We're going to see tonight how the Lord Jesus loved Judas to the end. My prayer for you is if you've been deceived, you'll hear God's loving voice. You will hear Christ's loving voice through, through a sermon like this morning, through this exhortation and imploring of you to turn from your sins and to trust in God's Son for real. To throw away the facade, to throw away the hypocrisy. I read this morning 
about Amaziah. What an interesting statement made about that man. It said he did what was right in the sight of God, but not with his whole heart. And you go on to read it as to how his life ended and, and it becomes plain that his heart wasn't there. And there are people like that, you see. They do what's right in the name of God, but their heart is not there. And over time, watch their life. It becomes clear that they know the way, they know the words, but the heart that's only produced by regeneration is absent. And I warn you that you can spend a lot of time in the light and not really belong to it. You can spend a lot of time talking about Jesus and not truly know Him. But be encouraged because the Son of God came into the world to save sinners. So if you turn and cry out to Christ with an honest heart, He will save you. My brothers and sisters would say, Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You these four pictures, each one telling us what happened, but each one also calling us to examine what is happening. Lord, we know standing at the center of every human existence, every person's existence is the Son of God. He will either be the foundation stone upon which our lives are built and never shaken, or He will be a stumbling stone upon which men will stumble and be destroyed. I pray, Lord, for anyone hearing me who doesn't know Jesus, oh Lord, would You save them this day? Would You grant them an honest heart? Would You grant them repentance and faith? Would they be willing, Lord, as a result, to lose their life to have Christ? To gain life? And I pray, Lord, for us. I pray for Your people, my brothers and sisters. Thank You, Lord. Thank You for Your mercy that has made us Your children. Thank You, Jesus, that You are the great shepherd of the sheep and that You laid down Your life for us. No one took it. You laid it down to make us Your own. Thank You that we are forgiven and that we believe. Help our unbelief. Strengthen us, Lord, in our resolve to serve Jesus for all our days. Help us to be like Mary. That we would do what is right in the sight of God and with our whole heart. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.